Chapter thirty seven, part three of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirsten Ferreri. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, volume three, chapter thirty seven. Conversion of the Barbarians to Christianity, part three. The different motives which influence the reason or the passions of the barbarian converts cannot easily be ascertained. They were often capricious and accidental. A dream, an omen, the report of a miracle, the example of some priest or hero, the charms of a believing wife, and, above all, the fortunate event of a prayer or vow which, in a moment of danger, they had addressed to the God of the Christians. The early prejudices of education were insensibly erased by the habits of frequent and familiar society. The moral precepts of the Gospels were protected by the extravagant virtues of the monks, and a spirit of theology was supported by the visible power of relics, and the pomp of religious worship. But the rational and ingenious mode of persuasion, which a Saxon bishop suggested to a popular saint, might sometimes be employed by the missionaries, who laboured for the conversion of infidels. Admit, says the sagacious disputant, whatever they are pleased to assert of the fabulous and carnal genealogy of their gods and goddesses who are propagated from each other. From this principle deduce their imperfect nature and human infirmities, the assurance that they were born, and the probability that they will die. At what time, by what means, from what cause, were the eldest of the gods or goddesses produced? Do they still continue, or have they ceased to propagate? If they have ceased, summon your antagonists to declare the reason of this strange alteration." if they still continue, the number of gods must become infinite, and shall we not risk, by the indiscreet worship of some impotent deity, to excite the resentment of his jealous superior? The visible heavens and earth, the whole system of the universe which may be conceived by the mind, is it created or eternal? If created, how or where could the gods themselves exist before creation? If eternal, how could they assume the empire of an independent and pre-existing world? Urge these arguments with temper and moderation. Insinuate at seasonable intervals the truth and beauty of the Christian revelation, and endeavor to make the unbelievers ashamed without making them angry. This metaphysical reasoning, too refined, perhaps, for the barbarians of Germany, was fortified by the grosser weight of authority and popular consent. The advantage of temporal prosperity had deserted the pagan cause, and passed over to the service of Christianity. The Romans themselves, the most powerful and enlightened nation of the globe, had renounced their ancient superstition, and if the ruin of their empire seemed to accuse the efficacy of the new faith, the disgrace was already retrieved by the conversion of the victorious Goths. The valiant and fortunate barbarians, who subdued the provinces of the West, successfully received and reflected the same edifying example. Before the age of Charlemagne, the Christian nations of Europe might exult in the exclusive possession of the temperate climates, of the fertile lands, which produced corn, wine, and oil, while the savage idolaters, and their helpless idols, were confined to the extremities of the earth, the dark and frozen regions of the north. Christianity, which opened the gates of heaven to the barbarians, introduced an important change in their moral and political condition. They received at the same time the use of letters, so essential to a religion whose doctrines are contained in a sacred book, and while they studied the divine truth, their minds were insensibly enlarged by the distant view of history, of nature, of the arts, and of society. The version of the scriptures into their native tongue, which had facilitated their conversion, must excite among their clergy some curiosity to read the original text, to understand the sacred liturgy of the church, and to examine in the ranks of the fathers the chain of ecclesiastical tradition. 
these spiritual gifts were preserved in the Greek and Latin languages, which concealed the inestimable monuments of ancient learning. The immortal productions of Virgil, Cicero, and Livy, which were accessible to the Christian barbarians, maintained a silent intercourse between the reign of Augustus and the times of Clovis and Charlemagne. The emulation of mankind was encouraged by the remembrance of a more perfect state, and the flame of science was scarcely kept alive to warm and enlighten the mature age of the Western world. In the most corrupt state of Christianity, the barbarians might learn justice from the law and mercy from the gospel, and if the knowledge of their duty was insufficient to guide their actions or to regulate their passions, they were sometimes restrained by conscience and frequently punished by remorse. But the direct authority of religion was less effectual than the Holy Communion, which united them with their Christian brethren in spirit friendship. The influence of these sentiments contributed to secure their fidelity in the servants or the alliance of the Romans to alleviate the horrors of the war, to moderate the insolence of conquest, and to preserve in the downfall of the empire a permanent respect for the name and institutions of Rome. In the days of paganism, the priests of Gaul and Germany reigned over the people and controlled the jurisdiction of the magistrates, and the zealous proselytes transferred to an equal or more ample measure of devout obedience to the pontiffs of the Christian faith. The sacred character of the bishops was supported by their temporal possessions. They obtained an honorable seat in the legislative assemblies of soldiers and freemen, and it was their interest as well as their duty to mollify by peaceful counsels the fierce spirit of the barbarians. The perpetual correspondence of the Latin clergy, the frequent pilgrimages to Rome and Jerusalem, and the growing authority of the popes, cemented the union of the Christian Republic, and gradually produced the similar manners and common jurisprudence which have distinguished from the rest of mankind the independent and even hostile nations of modern Europe. But the operation of these causes was checked and retarded by the unfortunate accident which infused a deadly poison into the cup of salvation. Whatever might be the early sentiments of Ulphilus, his connections with the empire and the church were formed during the reign of Arianism. The apostle of the Goths subscribed the creed of Rimini, professed with freedom and perhaps with sincerity that the son was not equal or consubstantial to the father, communicated these errors to the clergy and the people, and infected the barbaric world with a heresy which the Theodosius prescribed and extinguished among the Romans. The temper and understanding of the new proselytes were not adapted to metaphysical subtleties, but they strenuously maintained what they had piously received, as the pure and genuine doctrines of Christianity. The advantage of preaching and expounding the scriptures in the Teutonic language promoted the apostolic labors of Ulphilus and his successors, and they ordained a competent number of bishops and presbyters for the instruction of the kindred tribes the Ostrogoths, the Burgundians, the Suevi, and the Vandals, who had listened to the eloquence of the Latin clergy, preferred the more intelligible lessons of their domestic teachers. And Arianism was adopted as the national faith of the warlike converts, who were seated on the ruins of the Western Empire. This irreconcilable difference of religion was a perpetual source of jealousy and hatred, and the reproach of barbarian was embittered by the more odious epithet of heretic. The heroes of the North, who had submitted with some reluctance to believe that all their ancestors were in hell, were astonished and exasperated to learn that they themselves had only changed the mode of their internal condemnation. Instead of the smooth applause which Christian kings are accustomed to expect from their royal prelates, the Orthodox bishops and their clergy were in a state of opposition to the Arian courts, and their indiscreet opposition frequently became criminal, and sometimes might be dangerous." 
the pulpit, that safe and sacred organ of sedition, resounded with the names of Pharaoh and Holofernes. The public discontent was inflamed by the hope or promise of glorious deliverance, and the seditious saints were tempted to promote the accomplishment of their own predictions. Notwithstanding these provocations, the Catholics of Gaul, Spain, and Italy enjoyed, under the reign of the Arians, the free and peaceful exercise of their religion. Their haughty masters respected the zeal of a numerous people, resolved to die at the foot of their altars, and the example of their devout constancy was admired and imitated by the barbarians themselves. The conquerors evaded, however, the disgraceful reproach or confession of fear, by attributing their toleration to the liberal motives of reason and humanity. And while they affected the language, they imperceptibly imbibed the spirit of genuine Christianity. The peace of the Church was sometimes interrupted. The Catholics were indiscreet, the barbarians were impatient, and the partial acts of severity or injustice which had been recommended by the Arian clergy were exaggerated by the orthodox writers. The guilt of persecution may be imputed to Yorick, king of the Visigoths, who suspended the exercise of the ecclesiastical, or at least of episcopal, functions, and punished the popular bishops of Aquitaine with imprisonment, exile, and confiscation. But the cruel and absurd enterprise of subduing the minds of a whole people was undertaken by the Vandals alone. Genseric himself, in his early youth, had renounced the orthodox communion, and the apostate could neither grant nor expect a sincere forgiveness. He was exasperated to find that the Africans, who had fled before him in the field, still presumed to dispute his will in synods and churches, and his ferocious mind was incapable of fear or of compassion. His Catholic subjects were oppressed by intolerant laws and arbitrary punishments. The language of Genseric was furious and formidable. The knowledge of his intentions might justify the most unfavorable interpretation of his actions, and the Arians were reproached with the frequent executions which stained the palace and the dominions of the tyrant. Arms and ambition were, however, the ruling passions of the mark of the sea. But Huneric, his inglorious son, who seemed to inherit only his vices, sent to the Catholics with the same unrelenting fury which had been fatal to his brother, his nephews, and the friends and favorites of his father, and even to the Arian patriarch, who was inhumanly burnt alive in the midst of Carthage. The religious war was preceded and prepared by an insidious truce. Persecution was made the serious and important business of Vandal Court, and a loathsome disease which had hastened the death of Huneric, revenged the injuries without contributing to the deliverance of the Church. The throne of Africa was successively filled by the two nephews of Huneric, by Gundamund, who reigned about twelve, and by Thrasimund, who governed the nation about twenty-seven years. Their administration was hostile and oppressive to the Orthodox party. Gundamund appeared to emulate or even to surpass the cruelty of his uncle, and if at length he relented, if he recalled the bishops, and restored the freedom of Athanasian worship, a premature death intercepted the benefits of his tardy clemency. His brother, Thrasimund, was the greatest and most accomplished of the Vandal kings, whom he excelled in beauty, prudence, and magnanimity of soul. But this magnanimous character was degraded by his intolerant zeal and deceitful clemency. Instead of threats and tortures, he employed the gentle but efficacious powers of seduction. Wealth, dignity, and the royal favor were the liberal rewards of apostasy. The Catholics, who had violated the laws, might purchase their pardon by the renunciation of their faith, and whenever Thrasimund meditated any rigorous measure, he patiently waited till the indiscretion of his adversaries furnished him with a specious opportunity. Bigotry was his last sentiment in the hour of death, and he exacted from his successor a solemn oath that he would never tolerate the sectaries of Athanasius. But his successor, Hilderic, the gentle son of the savage Huneric, 
preferred the duties of humanity and justice to the vain obligation of an impious oath, and his accession was gloriously marked by the restoration of peace and universal freedom. The throne of that virtuous though feeble monarch was usurped by his cousin Gelimer, a zealous Arian, but the Vandal kingdom, before he could enjoy or abuse his power, was subverted by the arms of Belisarius, and the orthodox party retaliated the injuries which they had endured. The passionate declamations of the Catholics, the sole historians of this persecution, cannot afford any distinct series of causes and events, any impartial view of the characters or counsels, but the most remarkable circumstances that deserve either credit or notice may be referred to the following heads. 1. In the original law, which is still extant, Huneric expressly declares, and the declaration appears to be correct, that he had faithfully transcribed the regulations and penalties of the imperial edicts against the heretical congregations, the clergy, and the people, who dissented from the established religion. If the rights of conscience had been understood, the Catholics must have condemned their past conduct or acquiesced in their actual suffering, but they still persisted to refuse the indulgence which they claimed. While they trembled under the lash of persecution, they praised the laudable severity of Huneric himself, who burnt or banished great numbers of Manichaeans, and they rejected with horror the ignominious compromise that the disciples of Arius and of Athanasius should enjoy a reciprocal and similar toleration in the territories of the Romans and in those of the Vandals. 2. The practice of a conference, which the Catholics had so frequently used to insult and punish their obstinate antagonists, was retorted against themselves. At the command of Huneric, four hundred and sixty-six orthodox bishops assembled at Carthage, but when they were admitted into the hall of audience, they had the mortification of beholding the Arian Cyrilla exalted on the patriarchal throne. The disputants were separated, after the mutual and ordinary reproaches of noise and silence, of delay and precipitation of military force and of popular clamour. One martyr and one confessor were selected on the Catholic bishops. Twenty-eight escaped by flight, and eighty-eight by conformity. Forty-six were sent into Corsica to cut timber for the royal navy, and three hundred and two were banished to the different parts of Africa, exposed to the insults of their enemies, and carefully deprived of all temporal and spiritual comforts of life. The hardship of ten years' exile must have reduced their numbers, and if they had complied with the law of Thrasimund, which prohibited any episcopal consecrations, the Orthodox Church of Africa must have expired with the lives of its actual members. They disobeyed, and their disobedience was punished by a second exile of two hundred and twenty bishops into Sardinia, where they languished fifteen years, till the accession of the gracious Hilderic. The two islands were judiciously chosen by the malice of their Arian tyrants. Seneca, from his own experience, has deplored and exaggerated the miserable state of Corsica, and the plenty of Sardinia was overbalanced by the unwholesome quality of the air. 3. The zeal of Generic and his successors for the conversion of the Catholics must have rendered them still more jealous to guard the purity of the Vandal faith. Before the churches were finally shut, it was a crime to appear in barbarian dress and those who presumed to neglect the royal mandate were rudely dragged backwards by their long hair. The Palatine officers, who refused to profess the religion of their prince, were ignominiously stripped of their honours and employments, banished to Sardinia and Sicily, or condemned to the servile labours of slaves and peasants in the fields of Utica. In the districts which had been particularly allotted to the Vandals, the exercise of the Catholic worship was more strictly prohibited, and severe penalties were denounced against the guilt both of the missionary and the proselyte. 
By these arts the faith of the barbarians was preserved, and their zeal was inflamed. They discharged with devout fury the office of spies, informers, and executioners. And whenever their cavalry took the field, it was the favorite amusement of the march to defile the churches, and to insult the clergy and adverse faction. The citizens who had been educated in the luxury of the Roman province were delivered with exquisite cruelty to the moors of the desert. A venerable train of bishops, presbyters, and deacons, with a faithful crowd of four thousand ninety-six persons, whose guilt is not precisely ascertained, were torn from their native homes by the command of Huneric. During the night they were confined like a herd of cattle amidst their own ordure. During the day they pursued their march over the burning sands, and if they fainted under the heat and fatigue, they were goaded or dragged along till they expired in the hands of their tormentors. The unhappy exiles, when they reached the Moorish huts, might excite the compassion of a people whose native humanity was neither improved by reason nor corrupted by fanaticism, but if they escaped the dangers, they were condemned to share the distress of a savage life. 5. It is incumbent on the authors of persecution previously to reflect whether they determine to support it in the last extreme. They excite the flame which they strive to extinguish, and it soon becomes necessary to chastise the contumacy as well as the crime of the offender. The fine which he is unable or unwilling to discharge exposes his person to the severity of the law, and his contempt of lighter penalties suggests the use and propriety of capital punishment. Through veil of fiction and declamation we may clearly perceive that the Catholics, more especially under the reign of Huneric, endured the most cruel and ignominious treatment. Respectable citizens, noble matrons, and consecrated virgins were stripped naked and raised in the air by pulleys, with a weight suspended at their feet. In this painful attitude their naked bodies were torn with scourges, or burnt in the most tender parts with red-hot plates iron. The amputation of the ears, the nose, the tongue, and the right hand was inflicted by the Arians, and although the precise number cannot be defined, it is evident that many persons, among whom a bishop and a proconsul may be named, were entitled to the crown of martyrdom. The same honor has been ascribed to the memory of Count Sebastian, who professed the Nicene Creed with unshaken constancy, and Genseric might detest as a heretic the brave and ambitious fugitive whom he dreaded as a rival. 6. A new mode of conversion, which might subdue the feeble and alarm the timorous, was employed by the Arian ministers. They imposed, by fraud or violence, the rites of baptism, and punished the apostasy of the Catholics if they disclaimed this odious and profane ceremony, which scandalously violated the freedom of the will and the unity of the sacrament. The hostile sects had formerly allowed the validity of each baptism, and the innovation so fiercely maintained by the Vandals can be imputed only to the example and advice of the Donatists. 7. The Arian clergy surpassed in religious cruelty the king and his Vandals, but were incapable of cultivating the spiritual vineyard which they were so desirous to possess. A patriarch might seat himself on the throne of Carthage. Some bishops, in the principal cities, might usurp the place of their rivals. But the smallness of their numbers, and their ignorance of the Latin language, disqualified the barbarians for the ecclesiastical ministry of a great church, and the Africans, after the loss of their orthodox pastors, were deprived of the public exercise of Christianity. 8. The emperors were the natural protectors of the Homosian doctrine, and the faithful people of Africa, both as Romans and as Catholics, preferred their lawful sovereignty to the usurpation of the barbarous heretics. During an interval of peace and friendship, Huneric restored the cathedral of Carthage, 
at the intercession of Zeno, who reigned in the east, and of Placidia, the daughter and relict of emperors, and the sister of the queen of the Vandals. But this decent regard was of short duration, and the haughty tyrant displayed his contempt for the religion of the empire by studiously arranging the bloody images of persecution in all the principal streets through which the Roman ambassador must pass on his way to the palace. An oath was required from the bishops, who were assembled at Carthage, that they would support the succession of his son Hilderic, and that they would renounce all foreign or transmarine correspondence. This engagement, consistent as it should seem with their moral and religious duties, was refused by the more sagacious members of the assembly. Their refusal, faintly colored by the pretense that it is unlawful for a Christian to swear, provoked the suspicions of a jealous tyrant. End of chapter 37, part 3